Hello and welcome to NESGP's The Art of GP Locomy and we're joined today by Eloise Elphinstone who's got a talk for us on ovarian cancer as an abdominal cancer. Um, Eloise has given us, gave us a talk um, in 2023 as well which went down really really well so we're, we're bring, bringing Eloise back with, with, with an update and, 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 and adding some more into the talk and slightly changing the focuses and emphasis but Eloise is an experienced GP uh, two days a week and also works in uh, an HRT or uh, um, a women's health clinic twice a week as well, both privately and in the NHS. And I think, Louise, if I can hand over to you now and and, and take us away. This we've got a uh, we've got uh, forty five minutes, but use up as much of that as you need, and then at the end of it, we'll we'll, we'll see if, if um, we've got any uh, any questions, and uh, and then we can um, we can leave it at that. So uh, over to you, Louise. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me back again. Um, as uh, you said, I'm going to talk about ovarian cancer, which I have done a talk on before. So I hope there's not too much of an overlap. But the aim this time is just slightly changing the focus of how we see ovarian cancer. Um, because um, I'm, I'm doing this with targeted ovarian cancer and their big aim is to try and improve early diagnosis of ovarian cancer, which can be quite difficult to pick up. So what they are really trying to, to get out there is for us as GPs, but um, to see ovarian cancer as more of an abdominal cancer rather than a gynecological cancer. And I'll go through this, but but ultimately, when you look at the symptoms of ovarian cancer, actually, they are very much abdominal symptoms rather than more of the gynecological symptoms that you think of as bleeding. And um, so actually, if we change the mindset of how we look at it, hopefully that will help pick up more early cases. Um, so my screen's not letting me move forward. There we go. Um, so as Richard said, I am a GP with specialist interest in women's health. I work in Twickenham doing a couple of days a week. Um, I also work as a menopause specialist. I work at West Middlesex Hospital doing uh, NHS clinics there and private clinics with menopause care. Um, I've done some work with target ovarian cancer, marking the uh, amazing essays, student essays that they, they have for their competition. So that's how I've linked in with target ovarian cancer. Um, and I've also done a bit of work with Family Planning Association, writing patient leaflets um, on postnatal health and on menopause. Um, and I'm on Instagram as well. So to get started, um, unfortunately, ovarian cancer still has the worst prognosis of all gynecological cancers. Um, and if you look at it, of an average, there is the one year survival of 72% with ovarian cancer, but by five years, that goes down to 43%. But what's quite interesting with these statistics is if you divide it and look at the stage one survival versus the stage three to four, there's a huge discrepancy. So stage one, which basically means it's the, the cancer is confined to the ovaries, there's been no spread. If that's picked up at that point, one year survival is 98%, and that only falls to 90% at five years. Whereas when you're looking at stage three to four, which means it's spread into the abdominal area or stage four, it's spread further afield. Uh, one year survival rate is 50 to 60 percent, and that goes down to 27 percent at five years. So what we really want to be doing is trying to pick up these cases at stage one um, to try and improve survival. 
And I think with ovarian cancer, there is a bit of a misnomer linked with it that it sort of, it was known as the silent killer, the, the disease that has no symptoms early on and therefore really difficult to pick up. But actually, when, when you look at patients who've been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, 85% do have symptoms. The difficulty is the symptoms are often overlap with other conditions and often less sinister conditions, things like IBS. So it's really picking out which are the symptoms that we should be looking into and and who should we be looking for these more sinister causes. Um, And I think targeted ovarian cancer has a sort of slightly worrying statistic that over a quarter of um, patients or women with symptoms do report that they go to their GP three or more times before they're then referred for any investigations. Um, So what we want to try and be doing is making sure that, that, that investigations are started early, even if they're all normal, at least we're investigating earlier. And that also we're trying to reduce the, so that 25%, 27% are diagnosed after going to A&E. Um, and again, often, unfortunately, those are later stage diagnoses. So we want to be picking it up early and picking up these symptoms early and investigating early. So Ovarian cancer is the sixth most common cancer. And when you look at the statistics, there's about 7,500 cases diagnosed a year. And that works out as about 21 a day. So if you looked at an average GP surgery of about 10,000 patients, you'll probably see three to four cases a year. So it's not that rare. And we're likely, therefore, to see one. Um, And unfortunately, there are currently um, 11 deaths a day of ovarian cancer. And this is because 70% of ovarian cancers are diagnosed late stages. So um, this is where we want to try and change things around. Um, Most of the diagnoses are in postmenopausal women. It's about 10% in less than 50s. So really, it should be patients above 50. And actually, as you get older, the, the risk goes up. So we should really be thinking about it if people are presenting with symptoms, particularly if they're postmenopausal. So the risk factors. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, increasing age, as I mentioned. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Um, so 65% are over 65. And again, that, that percentage goes up the, um, the older people get. So increasing age is something that we should be looking at. Um, the next point, ultimately, the more you ovulate, the higher the risk of ovarian cancer. So if you've um, not had any children, if you've never used the contraceptive pill, if you've not breastfed, if you've had an early menarche or a late menopause, you've ovulated more and therefore you, you are at higher risk of ovarian cancer. A family history of ovarian cancer um, increases the risk. So if you've got a first degree relative, it increases the risk by about three to four times. So it's really important to ask about family history. And actually, that just takes me on to the next slide, which I, I won't go through in huge detail, but ultimately it's um, a really useful leaflet from the uh, target ovarian cancer looking at family history. Um, It's again, every area is different about the um, guidelines of when to refer on to the genetics clinic, but what it's it's sort of highlighting is that we should be getting a good history about breast and ovarian cancer. And if people are high risk, so that means basically if somebody's had um, a relative, first degree relative who's under the age 
age of 40 with breast cancer, you would want to be referring onwards. If they, you've got two first degree relatives at any age with breast cancer or a first and a second degree with breast cancer, you want to be referring on. If there's any history of male breast cancer in a first degree relative at any age, you refer on. Um, any bilateral breast cancer. So again, although we're talking about ovarian cancers, breast cancer history is, is really relevant. Um, and again, if there's a, a mix between um, breast and ovarian cancer history, again, excuse me, you want to be referring onwards. Um, and this is to the genetics clinic. They often then send out a complex questionnaire and they can then decide people who they want to see for more testing. And in the case of ovarian cancer, um, I'll move on to this slide. Just um, it's it, there is no screening. Um, so it's basically looking to see if the genetic test should be done to look um, for genes that put you at more risk of ovarian cancer. Um, What's quite interesting is about 20% of people who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer do have a family history, which can either be on the mum or the dad's side. Um, so it's relevant. Um, and often the main genes that people are concerned about are the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes. Um, so if you've got um, uh, these genes, then you would need to be sort of discussed further about um, what you'd want to be doing because you are at higher risk of um, ovarian cancer. Um, more so. Um, and then um, the other thing is Lynch syndrome, which is another condition um, also known as hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, um, which increases your risk of bowel cancer, it increases your risk of endometrial and it increases your risk of ovarian cancer. So the point of saying all of this is more just to be highlighting about family history and to refer on to the genetics clinic who can then take over and, and decide if further tests need to be done. Um, so going back to the other risk factors, again, a personal history of breast cancer increases your risk. It doubles the risk of, of ovarian cancer. Um, and again, this is linked to the genes. So that's something that we need to be, be aware of. Obesity, it increases the risk. It's only a small amount, but again, it's a risk factor. Um, endometriosis, again, only a small amount, but um, general population, about 2% um, percent of patients have um, get, breath, uh, get ovarian cancer. Endometriosis, it increases it to about 2.5%. Um, smoking increases the risk. Um, but there's about one per 100 cases of ovarian cancer that are linked with smoking. And then HRT, I put in brackets. Um, it depends what you read and where you read it about whether HRT is at risk of, of ovarian cancer or not. Basically, we just don't have good studies. Um, the, the, the studies we have don't provide a good causal link. Um, and the, the risks, um, if you read in different places, between one to four per a thousand extra cases of uh, ovarian cancer with HRT. So it's minimal. And I think with HRT, I mean, I suppose I'm a medical specialist, so um, it's something I see more but you want to be looking at the pros and cons as well but it's 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 to be thought about so I touched on this before. So screening. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any screening yet for ovarian cancer. And there was a large study um, done back. Um, they recruited women between 2001 and 2005 um, at the UK Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening, um, which was published in 2021. And basically, it took 200,000 postmenopausal women um, that they grouped into three different groups. One of no screening at all 
one of what they called multimodal screening, which was having an annual CA125 and then an ultrasound if the, the CA125 was raised. And then uh, the third group was annual ultrasound scans. And these patients were screened until 2011 and followed up till 2020. And what was quite interesting was in this study, which was quite a large study, there were more stage one cancers detected in the multimodal group, but there was no difference in ovarian cancer deaths or all-cause mortality. So the summary um, on conclusion from this is at the moment, population screening cannot be recommended, um, which in some ways is surprising because we know if we pick up early cancers, we are there is a much better survival rate. But I think what this shows is, unfortunately, we just don't have good screening to pick up the early cancers. The CA125 and the ultrasounds help, but they're not the be-all and end-all. So ultimately, we need to be trying to pick it up ourselves. So symptoms. So this is where I sort of put the idea of thinking about it as an abdominal cancer, because when you look at the groups of symptoms, they are actually quite abdominal type symptoms. So the one that we often think about is the bloating. Um, so persistent abdominal distension. And again, with symptoms with ovarian cancer, because there's such an overlap with other conditions, what you want to be looking for is the frequency. So how often is it happening? Is it persistent? So is it coming and going, which is possibly less likely, or is it there all the time? And again, is it new? So um, something that's been going on for, for 20 years off and on is much less likely than something that's new, that's persistent, that's happening all the time. So with bloating, it's something that's there all the time. People can describe it in different ways. They feel they're putting on weight, their trousers are feeling tighter, um, but they're waking up in the morning feeling bloated and it's continuing throughout the day. Feeling full, um, uh, so early satiety, feeling full or loss of appetite can be another cause. Um, which again can make you think more of sort of gastric abdominal symptoms, but again with ovarian cancer, pelvic and abdominal pain, which is persistent. So it's there becoming more and more common urinary symptoms. So urgency. So if you think if um, there is an ovarian cancer that's pushing on the bladder, you can feel like you need the loo all the time. You can be going to the loo a lot. Also, um, people could be diagnosed with recurrent urinary tract infections. But actually, when you look at the MSUs, the dips um, and the MSUs, there's no bacteria there. So persistent asterile or um, sterile MSUs make you need to make you think, well, actually, is there something else going on here? It's not an infection. So what's causing these symptoms? Um, weight loss and fatigue um, can be a symptom. And again, um, it's really important just if, if that's the main symptom still to be investigating that. And then the one that's more, that's probably not going to make you think so much of ovarian cancer, but is change in bowel habit. So any changes in bowel habit, if you're thinking about bowel cancer, think about ovarian cancer at the same time. Um, I did look at these and think, actually, if we're looking at postmenopausal women who are telling us they've got urinary symptoms, they're feeling tired, um, maybe that could be menopause as well. And so I think it's, it's really important to be actually taking a step back and thinking, well, what's menopause, but also what? could be other things and what should we be looking up for and actually hopefully ruling out and 
Target Ovarian Cancer on their website, and I'm sure there's others out there as well, have um, a really helpful symptom diary because a lot of these are quite vague symptoms. And again, if one, if it's one symptom that's the first time they've mentioned it, um, doesn't always make you think of ovarian cancer. But if you're getting, if you're not sure what's going on and you're getting patients to do a symptom diary, it's quite useful to see how frequently. So again, if, if symptoms are occurring more than say 12 times a month, that's much more relevant. And how many of the symptoms are they getting? getting and is it persisting so a symptom diary either initially or if you've investigated and everything's come back normal but you're still not sure about what's causing it um, and you want to be following them up a symptom diary can be really helpful um, to get the patients to do and then make them come back eight weeks later or something to bring the symptom diary with them and so one of the big sort of overlaps is IVS, uh, sorry, IBS versus ovarian cancer, um, one very sinister, one much less so. And it's really important to distinguish between the two. And one main tip, which I'll, I'll reiterate later as well, but IBS is incredibly rare to be newly diagnosed in the over 50s. So if somebody's being diagnosed younger and the symptoms are coming and going and they've still got them in their 50s, then fine, it could be. But if somebody's never had IBS and they're coming with symptoms, you would really want to be very cautious about diagnosing IBS over the age of 50 without ruling out other things first. And some of the differences between the symptoms. So um, pain in IBS often can be relieved by opening bowels, whereas with ovarian cancer, the pain doesn't change with opening bowels. In IBS, you can get mucus in your stools if you have change in bowel habit. Again, change in bowel habit with ovarian cancer is unlikely to have mucus. And then the bloating is a big one. So bloating with irritable bowels really common, but it often comes and goes. So you can wake up in the morning with no bloating. It's worse by the end of the day. Um, food makes it worse. Whereas with ovarian cancer, it's persistent. You wake up in the morning with bloating. It's there all the time. So it's looking at these subtle differences to distinguish between the two. <laughs> So but what would you do for investigation? So the NICE guidelines um, are that if you have symptoms suggestive of ovarian cancer, whether that be one or whether it be a group of them, the first thing that you do is organise a CA125 blood test. The Scottish sign guidelines are a bit different. You would organise a CA125 and an ultrasound at the same time. Um, but the NICE guidelines are you start with the CA125. If that comes back raised, um, again, I'm sure some labs are different, but generally over the over 35, you would be referring for an urgent abdominal and pelvic ultrasound scan. And if that ultrasound scan is suggestive of, of something more sinister, um, then you would refer on as a two week wait. If I mean, I always think if the levels going in the hundreds, then I probably would be referring straight for a two week wait as well as maybe getting the ultrasound at the same time. But it is dependent on guidance and some will not accept without an ultrasound scan. Um, I think it, the, the other question is, if it's really high and you get an ultrasound scan that's normal, are you going to be reassured with that? And I think if it was really high in a postmenopausal woman and a normal ultrasound, I'd still be referring onwards. If, however, the ultrasound is slightly raised, the ultrasound comes back normal, 
or your original CA125 was normal, these are the patients that you need to be thinking about other causes. So if you've got a normal CA125 with these symptoms, what else could it be? However, we've got to remember that the CA125 and the ultrasounds are not 100%. So I would say unless we've got a really good answer about what the symptoms are, these are the people that maybe you want to give a symptom diary to, that maybe you want to review in eight weeks time. And actually you can repeat the CA125 in eight weeks time. So if it's come back negative, but the symptoms are still there and you repeat it and it's rate, it's it's going up, that would again warrant you maybe to want to do more investigations to do an ultrasound and then refer onwards if need be. If you've had a CA125 that's raised, and you've had a normal ultrasound and you've decided you don't need to refer for a two-week wait. Again, these are the people that maybe you'd want to repeat the CA125 after eight weeks, particularly if symptoms are still there. And again, if it's going up, refer onwards. Um, so that's the way I, I sort of simplistically look at, look at it. But both CA125 and ultrasounds can be falsely reassuring. So we shouldn't in our minds rule out ovarian cancer if those two or one of them are negative. Um, the, the difficulty is it's it's quite useful. CA125 is quite useful in advanced stages. 80% it comes back positive. But in the early stages, which is the stages we really want to be picking up, it's only 50% of women who have a positive CA125. Um, you can get false negatives for a variety of reasons. It can depend on the type of ovarian cancer. In early stages, it can be not as high, so you um, don't pick it up. And in premenopausal women, often it, they, you can get false negatives. Um, and then false positives as well, um, which need to be cautious and, 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 and warn women that, that if it does come back high, there are other reasons for it coming back high. So other malignancies can, can cause it liver disease, endometriosis, that's it's quite a big one that, that can cause it to go up and panic patients, whereas actually the endometriosis. Um, and the other thing is, if you're on your period, if you're menstruating, that can put it up. So generally try and get the test done if they're premenopausal when they're not on their period. Um, and it's a similar marker to sort of CRP, ESR. It's an inflammatory type marker. So inflammatory cases, things like PID can also put it up. So both ways, a negative one shouldn't we should be cautious about and a positive one, it can be other reasons. Um, but you still want to obviously look into it. So this is a, a new poster that Target Ovarian Cancer have done, which is just making us think of abdominal cancers and ovarian cancers together. So, and this is quite a good way of, of thinking about it. If you're thinking about doing a fit test, if you're worried about bowel cancer, do a CA125. If somebody's got new indigestion or weight loss and you're going to investigate that, do a CA125. Again, if you're requesting an endoscopy, so maybe because somebody's feeling a bit bloated, they're getting a bit of acid reflux, they're feeling a bit full, do a CA125. And as I mentioned before, sterile dysuria. So um, UTIs where actually we're not picking up a bacteria, think about other causes and do a CA125. Now, again, as I say, with the CA125s aren't, aren't 100%, but at least it's something that we can start thinking about. And there's a little uh, postcard that the target ovarian cancer have done um, on red flags. And I think if we take, if you're going to take anything away from today, um, that two things, new diagnosis of IBS in the over fifties is rare. So you want to be thinking of other causes. 
A new onset overactive bladder or recurrent UTIs in the over 50s. Again, you want to be thinking about ovarian cancer. I think that's a diff- more difficult one because perimenopause, menopause can make you, uh, you get an overactive bladder, can increase uh, urinary tract infection. So that could be the reason. But I think you want to be also just making sure you're ruling out that there's anything else causing it. And I wanted to sort of end just with my menopause background, um, just a little bit about HRT in those who've had ovarian cancer. So a lot of most women are postmenopausal. Um, so if they are having a nephrectomy, then you're not putting them into menopause. But in the women who are perimenopausal or premenopausal who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, the treatment generally is, is um, a hysterectomy and an oophorectomy. So you are putting them into menopause. And there's often concern then with these people about should they have HRT for two reasons. One is symptom control because they are having a surgical menopause. Um, And again, if they're young, very young, um, then you are putting them into early menopause and therefore there is risk to heart disease and and bone disease. Um, So there's a really, really useful, and I'll flick forward a couple of slides, um, study or paper that I often go back to, which um, is uh, Hormone Replacement Therapy in Cancer Survivors, which is a a literature review. And for any type of cancer, they then do a literature review about HRT um, and that type of cancer. Um, And so from an ovarian cancer point of view, Basically, over 90% of ovarian cancers are epithelial ovarian tumours. And that basically these are split into um, a group of there's serous tumours, endometrioid tumours, clear cell tumours, mucinous tumours and undifferentiated. And that group, the general um, guidelines are is that HRT can be given safely. Um, It does not it's not thought to increase the recurrence of ovarian cancer. Um, And actually there's even a little bit of evidence that it may help increase survival. There's, um, as mentioned, a little bit of caution with endometrioid uh, ovarian cancers, slightly illogical because then if you look the paragraph down with endometrial cancers, which is similar pathophysiology, it's um, they're they're reassuring with HRT. Um, But ultimately I think, any of these patients you'd want to be referring on to a menopause clinic, but it just, just to give a little bit of, of reassurance that majority can take HRT, um, which is good for both symptom control and, um, and health um, as well. So just to summarize, ovarian cancer is not a silent killer. So we should be looking out for symptoms. The majority of people do have them. We should be thinking about this much more as an abdominal cancer. So when we're thinking about those other abdominal ones, add this to your list. CA125 and ultrasounds are not perfect, but they are useful and they're the tools that we've got at the moment. However, safety net. So if these these do come back negative, you really want to be watching, monitoring and making sure the symptoms either go or you've got another explanation. Again, beware of newly diagnosed IBS over 50s, beware of recurrent sterile MSUs, consider a symptom diary and um, looking at trends of CA125 um, is really helpful. And as, as I say, as yet, there's no screening, but let's watch this space. Um, there's some really useful educational um Uh, in uh, resources, uh, both for GPs um, and also for patients on the Target Ovarian Cancer uh, website, um, which I've sort of gone through. There's some useful videos, there's some um, useful CPD 
bits that you can do. There's a really useful leaflet, again, for nurses to give out. Um, apparently, quite a few patients, when they go for their smear test, think that smear tests are checking for ovarian cancer. So we're reassured with a normal smear test. So there's a leaflet that, that nurses can give when they do a smear test, um, explaining about ovarian cancer, explaining about the symptoms. So that, that's uh, really helpful as well. Um, and I have, I've got a couple of, I, I put a couple of case studies in case uh, I was, had more time, but I don't know whether we want to leave those and do questions um, or, or what, what you prefer. I, um, I haven't got any specific questions. I've got just a few, few points, but I think, I think at least one case study. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, the first one is probably the, the most sort of useful. So why don't we why don't we do that one? And uh, it's, it's basically looking at sort of cysts and, and what you do with ovarian cysts. So why don't I start with that and then, and then we can get, go to your points. Um, so this is a 35 year old um, lady um, who presented with irregular periods, um, but no other symptoms. So um, the GP did blood tests, um, which came back normal. So she had normal thyroid, normal prolactin, um, normal FSH and LH. Um, and so then referred for an ultrasound scan, which just incidentally picked up a 35 millimeter simple cyst. So what do you do in this situation? Um, well, generally, firstly, it is, I mean, you often see this and you think a simple cyst, fine, nothing to worry about, which generally it is. But what I would probably suggest is to take a really thorough history, make sure there's no symptoms that could be suggestive of ovarian cancer. So go through the, the list of, of presenting of, of ovarian cancer symptoms, check that she's not experiencing any. And if she is not, if she's absolutely asymptomatic, she's premenopausal, and the cyst is less than five centimetres, 50 millimetres, then generally you can reassure with, with her. Um, let me move on to the next slide. Um, so it, simple cyst, so thin walled, unilocular, less than five centimetres, no further action is needed unless there's any symptoms that would make you concerned. If there are symptoms, then I would suggest getting a CA125 um, at that point, even though she's young and um, it is a simple cyst, it's worth worth doing. But if, if she is, has nothing else, then you can reassure um, if there is a larger cyst, um, so again, it depends on guidelines. I've put up our local guidelines um, in the next couple of slides. Um, but if it is um, larger than five centimetres or it's a complex cyst, um, then you might want to refer onwards non-urgently unless they are postmenopausal with symptoms um, or it's a, a sinister looking uh, cyst and then you'd want to be referring on as a two week wait. Um, so just showing our, I won't go into this in huge detail, but um, the, this is the guidance with ovarian cysts around our area. And it might be worth sort of seeing what's around your area, but it's generally divided into premenopausal and postmenopausal. So to simplify it, a simple cyst that's less than five centimetres with no symptoms you can reassure. A cyst between five and seven centimetres with no symptoms, you probably want to rescan at about four months to check if there's any changes. And if it is changing or getting larger, you'd probably want to be referring onwards. 
And then if it's above seven centimetres, um, you'd be wanting to refer on. Now, the, the question is, do you refer just to gynae routinely or do you refer for a two week wait? And again, I think that's dependent on symptoms or um, the type of cyst. So a simple cyst with no symptoms refer probably routinely, a complex cyst or a cyst with symptoms or a raised with a raised CA. The cutoff is stricter with a size, so less than two centimetres, you'd be reassured. Um, but two to five, you'd be wanting to monitor and above um, five, you'd be wanting to, to do CA125s and referring if need be. So um, I think all I would say from this is that if a cyst is picked up, um, just question, question the patient and make sure there are um, no symptoms linked with it because that the symptoms would change um, the way you'd be managing it. Um, this, uh, the, I'll maybe quickly, this was quite an interesting one. I think this is quite rare, um, but again, it's, it's, it's the sort of, it's a case that I've found, um, on target ovarian cancer that a gynecologist had come, um, uh, 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 towards. And, um, it was a 70 year old lady who presented her GP with bloating and pain who, um, quite rightly did a CA125, which came back quite raised at 256. They did refer onwards for an ultrasound scan, but it was normal. However, because the level was so high, they did refer for a two week wait. And I suppose you could probably almost have referred onwards without the, the ultrasound. What was not what was interesting, and so this was a gynecologist presenting this case, the C, she did a CT scan, which was normal. So the patient was discharged, but recommended to have a repeat CA125 um, after discharge. And, and it was done and it came back and it had risen and she was re-referred. She had another CT scan and it still came back normal. But the gynecologist has, was feeling dodgy at this point and a laparoscopy was done and she had a bilateral salpingophorectomy. And it was found that in the fallopian tube, there was a cancer, um, which just wasn't picked up on either the CT or the ultrasound scan um but that the ca125 rising was the bit that that showed that something was going on so that i think the, the point of me saying that is it's rare as gps it's unlikely we're going to be, be dealing with that but what we should be doing is monitoring so monitoring somebody with symptoms or monitoring somebody with a ca125 that's a bit up to check that it's not going up and up that is me finished that's really really interesting i, I know and i suppose the, the points that at least i wanted to make were is 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 how it, as a cancer it's just it's not only highly elusive i mean that 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 in in, in the in the um fallopian tube having a tumor there and the, yeah. even the gynecologist doing a ct scan and still not Absolutely. going back to normal yeah. and it's still there um it, it's elusive but it also the, the, I, I love the way you uh, earlier on were approaching this in, in, a, in a lateral sort of way we have to think laterally about this it's because because again it's it's not just elusive it's masquerading as other things as ibs as UTS, which we know are common and which we know are generally benign um but then but then you can have this 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 sinister elusive cancer masquerading but behind Absolutely. It. And I think what we've got to remember is the other things are probably much more common. Um, yeah. um, but we just and I think having worked with target ovarian cancer now, and maybe I overdo it, but every time any of these symptoms, it's, I automatically think, oh, gosh, right. Need to do a CA125, need to be checking. And it's it's a balance, isn't it? But I think it's just making sure that it is in your mind. Um, and 
I mean, the, what, what's the worst that can happen if you over-investigate? You obviously don't want to be doing things unnecessarily, but we, we're clearly not doing a good enough job about picking up the earlier um, uh, ovarian cancers. So if, if, if it's just there when we're thinking about these other much more common things, then it is hopefully just at the, more of the forefront of our mind just to be questioning. Or in our minds, it might be ruling it out, but at least we're thinking about it. There's, there's something also potentially cultural within in sort of general practice. I mean, I was listening to a really, really good podcast the other day, which was which gave a summary of the um, the I forget the name of the drug, but the new um, um, uh, drug for breast cancer for primary prevention. Um, yes. The, yeah, first degree, secondary family history of, of breast cancer. But it didn't mention ovarian cancer. And then, yes, in this talk, you're talking about ovarian cancer, but you're talking a lot about breast cancer. And it and it's and it, we 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 kind of can get too almost as generalists get almost too focused on a on a, on a disease when actually this approach of talking about ovarian cancer you can't because actually you've spent a lot of your time not talking about ovarian cancer. You've been talking about yeah. other symptoms, other, other other conditions, and it's again it's it's changing that. I and I and I and I I don't know if there's a solution to this, but but again, the, the symptoms that we talk about when we talk about when we need to think about ovarian cancers, words like bloating and urgency, they they they're not they're not owned by ovarian cancer. Well, again, we're borrowing those phrases yeah. from common illnesses. I almost wonder if um, there's a way to kind of. We, we we find this in society when we suddenly a word we we pick up on a word and we think and that all of a sudden it can it f- helps us focus in we almost need a a, a unique symptom um, which is something like like let's just, I'm going to pick a word I'm going to pick the word grinding let's say yes. and 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 that's the word we have to tell people what that means and, and rather than try and get our patients to think laterally what are you bloating are you are you got any, are you got are you going to the loo all the time it's well are you getting this word this grinding word yeah. and and that let them associate with oh well yeah, that's a symptom of breast cancer because we don't it doesn't have its own symptoms it has to borrow Absolutely. others and let's, let's find a unique one for it but I, I don't know if we'll ever be able to do that and i well and i think what's so difficult so breast cancer breast lumps it's the first thing that people think about breast lump they think breast cancer and, yeah. and um, whereas ovarian and i think this is where ovarian cancer is so difficult that although there are symptoms generally linked with it they're vague and there's a variety of different ones so one symptom in itself is not going to make somebody necessarily think about ovarian cancer. And I think actually it's it's sort of public uh, education as well, because it's there. It's not so understood. The symptoms are much more vague. Um, and therefore, people aren't going to be sort of necessarily presenting with, I mean, bloating, the first thing generally most people probably think about is IBS type things. So it, it's trying to get people to present early as well. Um, and that's where it's a much harder condition to, to, to diagnose. Yeah. Yeah. But the more that can be talked about and, as I say, leaflets given out by nurses and educating and all of that, hopefully the word will get out and um, and you never know, there might be better screening in the future as well. Yeah. Well, that that would be that would be something, wouldn't Make it? Our lives easier. Moment, you know, yeah. Again, so interesting how it just doesn't increase survival at all. What we what we currently think of as screening. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so it's 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 uh, it is a difficult one. It really is, and it's not it's um, not easy to pick up. So um, it's just sort of just keeping it in the forefront of your mind and um, testing and testing and checking and reviewing and monitoring. Yeah. 
Listen, this has been um, this has been so, so helpful, and and um, again, uh, thank you so much for, for for putting this together. This slide deck for us has been really wonderful, really useful. Um, so this will be going out on podcast as well as on on, on our YouTube video. Um, so again, Louise, thank you very much, and and I'm sure we'll, we'll be inviting you back for for an update um, maybe next year. But thank you. Very oh, much. Well, brilliant! No, thank you so much for having me, and it's uh, it's lovely to be back in the new year. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Great. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.